There's so much health advice out there, lots of different voices and opinions, but who can you trust? Trust the experts, the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them tough, intimate health questions so you get the answers you need. This is the Health Essentials Podcast, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Health Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, Annie Zaleski, and today we're talking about frozen shoulder with orthopedic sports medicine specialist, Dr. Vikas Patel. Frozen shoulder, which is also known as adhesive capsulitis, describes a condition in which the movement of the shoulder becomes limited. The condition can develop for many reasons, but it is very painful and can have a serious impact on your daily life. Luckily, with physical therapy, exercise, and other interventions, frozen shoulder is very treatable. Dr. Patel is here to talk about what causes frozen shoulder and the best ways to approach treatment. Dr. Patel, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So first off, talk to us a little bit. What is frozen shoulder? So frozen shoulder, or uh, also known as adhesive capsulitis, um, is, is a term where the capsule, or the I like to call it a balloon that sits around the shoulder joint, um, has shrunken down. Um, and usually due to adhesions that are shrunken down, and in turn causing pain and limited motion of the shoulder. So as far as I know, there are three stages of frozen shoulder. Is that correct? Yeah, we do have a ter- terming for, a terminology for um, uh, the three stages. And it's pretty simple of uh, freezing, frozen, and thawing. So the three stages kind of just go through the kind of the, the range and, and the pain levels, those sort of things like that. So in that early stage, the first stage of freezing, um, that's where we're seeing some of the onset of the pain, um, some of the motion is decreasing, um, those sort of things like that. Then it gets to a point where it's frozen and that's where it's stuck at that that point where it's pain is at that level, um, the motion is staying at that level. And then the thawing phase, the third phase is where it's opening up and that's where we're seeing that the motion is improving, the pain is improving. Excellent. So how common is frozen shoulder then? So it, it's relatively common. Um, I think uh, from an incident standpoint of a general population, um, it ranges from about three to 5% of, of, of general population. Um, it is a little bit more common in diabetics. Um, uh, most recent numbers are around 20% of diabetics who develop frozen shoulder. So why does someone end up developing frozen shoulder? Why would a diabetic you know, develop frozen shoulder maybe more than someone else in the population? That's a good question, um, and, and I don't think we fully understand why diabetics have a higher correlation um, of, of developing frozen shoulder, um, but along with kind of why else could it happen, um, mainly is due to uh, decreased motion, so it's a lot of times we'll see it post-surgical where it needs to be in slings and, and immobilization. Um, sometimes it will occur after an injury, and you know, subconsciously, as, as anybody would, if, if something, if we injure a, a body part, we use less of it. And in turn, that can kind of cause the adhesions and the capsule to shrink down and, um, and, and develop, excuse me, uh, develop a frozen shoulder. 
So in addition to diabetes, are there other conditions in particular that might make people more at risk for developing this? There's some thought um, in, in some autoimmune disor disorders that there could be some correlation with that. Um, there's also a enzyme called HLA-B27 that has a higher correlation with uh, frozen shoulder as well. So what shoulder injuries or injuries to the upper part of the body might make people more prone to developing frozen shoulder? So a lot of times when you could have a fall and you injure a rotator cuff, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and that sort of thing like that, again, we, we have a kind of defense mechanism built into us that we're going to not use the shoulder as much. And, and in turn, that can make the capsule angrier, uh, develop the frozen shoulder and make that worse. Along with that, you can injure the capsule. So remember, the capsule is the balloon around the shoulder joint you can injure, caps, injure that capsule when we have a fall or sometimes it's, you know, you, more commonly with a fall, but sometimes, you know, reaching too far, grabbing something and lifting something heavily, um, that sort of thing like that can, can angry, anger the capsule as well. Is there a typical age range where someone might develop this or could it develop at all ages? Uh, more commonly we see is, is age range of 40 to 60 years old. Um, a lot of times after 60, it could be issues of arthritis as a problem. Um, under can be, um, you know, the, the joint is still developing, capsule, everything is still developing. So more, more commonly we see is 40 to 60. Um, and going along with that kind of population group, females are a little bit more common um, to, to develop this than, than males are. Do doctors know why that is? Again, that's something that um, we don't fully understand why. Um, uh, I think that's just one of those many mysteries of, of why certain, certain um, you know, diseases are in certain genders or race or anything like that. It's just uh, there's not a full understanding on that. So what are some common symptoms of frozen shoulder? How do you know you have this? So, so the two most common symptoms are going to be pain. And, and decreased range of motion. Um, and so pain is, is, is usually one that is significant. Um, it's, it's more than just kind of a, oh, it's a sore, achy, it's a significant, I can't move, I move my shoulder any little bit. Um, and then range of motion, decreased range of motion, a lot of times that's progressively gets worse to a certain degree, to a certain point. And then um, you're, you're stuck at that, at that point and just not able to improve that range of motion. Does frozen shoulder tend to come on right away or is this something that develops over time? More commonly, it's, it, it is a gradual onset um, of, uh, if we think about that, that capsule or that balloon kind of shrinking down, um, that is what's, you know, that can take time to kind of occur. So capsule shrinking down, those adhesions occurring, and the, the, the pain worsening, the range of motioning worsening. And so in that freezing stage, you know, that can vary two to six months even um, of where that pain increases over that time frame, the decreased motion worsens over that time frame. Uh, um, and, and so a lot of times it is a gradual onset rather than um, I woke up and the next, the next day I have frozen shoulders. So speaking to that, I think a lot of times people worry about, you know, that sleeping in an awkward position or moving their arm the wrong way could make frozen shoulder worse. Is that something people should worry about? That is not something to worry about. Um, 
in fact, what we want is, is we want motion with the arm and with the shoulder um, to try to help open up that capsule or that, that balloon. So uh, the, sleeping on it wrong um, or stretched out or any which way, um, that won't have an effect on frozen shoulder itself. It's just a matter of comfort level. So what I usually say to patients is that whatever feels comfortable sleeping-wise, however it is, uh, sleeping on your, your opposite shoulder, sleeping on your back, whatever it is that's comfortable, that's the, that's the best position for you. Are there any activities that you could do that might make frozen shoulder worse or exacerbate some of the pain and symptoms? So this is the same thing where, where it comes down to the symptoms. So again, what we want with, with the frozen shoulder is range of motion. We want, we want the patients to be able to move their arm and try to, try to break open those adhesions and break open that scar tissue. Um, and so, um, again, kind of pain as our guide. So if there's certain activities that, that bother it, well then, you know, obviously we need to be monitoring that and, you know, consulting with a health professional and, and that sort of thing like that. But if there's certain things that are not bothering it and it's kind of helping and keeping things loose, then, then that's, that's what we want. What do you typically hear from people when they talk about how frozen shoulder affects their daily lives? Absolutely. So um, if you can imagine, your, your shoulder normally moves in, in a large capacity and, and it's free and all that. If we shrink it down and now you only have 25% of what you normally can do with that shoulder or that arm or 30%, 50%, um, think about the day-to-day -day activities that you could normally do, reaching up at, uh, above the fri fridge or at that high counter to grab a, a coffee cup, um, you know, reaching back and behind the car, those sort of things like that. Now, those motions are limited because of the shrunken capsule. Um, and so now you can't do that. And on top of that, it hurts to do that. So to think about kind of those sort of things of everyday activity. So we get plenty, when we see patients with these, it's everyday things that, that bothers the, the, the patients with. And, and like I said, the, the pain is pretty significant with these. That's probably a really good sign then too, if you suspect you might have it. If you're finding that there's more difficulties and pain doing activities you normally would do easily, I would imagine. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So we, we get that all the time where, you know, I was doing good and, you know, over the last couple of months, you know, just progressively getting worse of just, I can't reach up high enough. I can't reach back behind me, and uh, you know, far enough. I, I, plenty of women that say, I can't reach to, to, to do my bra strap. I can't reach to do my hair. Um, those sort of things like that, where you're just like noticing worsening over weeks and months um, of those symptoms. So let's move on to start talking about diagnosis and treatment. How is someone diagnosed with frozen shoulder and what do doctors do to kind of determine that this is the diagnosis? Yeah, so when we see patients in the office, um, we do uh, like getting an x-ray. We would prefer getting an x-ray for this. The main reason is that frozen shoulder will not show up on x-ray, but the main reason is to rule out other causes. In particular, arthritis. Um, arthritis can kind of be a similar um, symptom profile of pain, decreased range of motion uh, in the shoulder. 
So that's the first thing that, that we like to do is, is get an x-ray, rule out um, any other causes that could be causing pain, decreased range of motion. Then um, obviously taking a history of how long things have been going, has there been an injury, anything like that. And then the main thing that we look at is um, the range of motion. So we check the range of motion of going straight up with the arm, straight out and up with the arm, and then kind of in and reaching out. So we measure the two, uh, you know, the, the right shoulder versus the left shoulder or what have you, um, and see if there's a difference in range of motion. If there's a difference of range of motion, um, and it's the fact that I am forcing you and I cannot force you to get up any higher or any further as far as range of motion, then we start thinking of uh, frozen shoulder as a cause of pain. We also test the rotator cuff uh, along with other parts of the shoulder to make sure that there's no other, again, underlying injury that could be causing the pain decrease range of motion, those sort of things like that. So if I, all the other tests check out, rotator cuff testing, your labrum testing, everything else in the shoulder check out, and it's the pain and the range of motion that's our issue, then frozen shoulder is generally our diagnosis. Um, we generally do not need MRIs for these. Um, a lot of times MRIs, again, will be used for, to rule out other causes of pain and issues with the shoulder. Um, sometimes we won't see any findings of uh, frozen shoulder on MRIs. Sometimes we do see some thickening of the capsule. Um, those yeah. things like that. You know, I think that brings up a good question. Can someone have frozen shoulder in both shoulders at the same time? You normally see it in one one shoulder at a time. Um, it's not unreasonable to have it in both shoulders. Um, kind of thinking back, just kind of off the top of my head, I, you know, I think I may have had one case of where we had it on both sides um, over the years. Um, so it's it's not impossible. Don't get me wrong there. Um, that's where we're going to see that it's going to be more of an underlying um, uh, issue of like like a diabetic that might be more commonly we'll, we'll see that in. Um, uh, so like I said, it's not impossible, but, um, not very common. If someone's been diagnosed with frozen shoulder, what are some common treatments? So, um, there's, there's kind of a multitude of things that, that, that can be done. Again, our main goal is to get that capsule, that balloon that sits around the shoulder back to its normal size. So honestly, if you left it alone, if the patient left it alone and kind of just did everyday stuff and, and, and uh, went on with life, it would actually go back to its normal self. Now, on average, unfortunately, that could be two to three years. Okay, so, so obviously not many people wanna be, uh, you know, decreased range of motion and in pain for, for that time frame. So there's a lot of things that we can do to help expedite those things. And that's where a physical therapist can help what we call passive range of motion, where they help you move that arm and try to open up that capsule so, so freeze up. So that's, that's one of the mainstays of treatment that we do. Um, another treatment that we do to help more with discomfort and pain is a cortisone injection. Cortisone, strong anti-inflammatory, usually inflammation is a process, usually a cause of pain in this. Um, so cortisone can help decrease the inflammation um, involved and help with the pain and in turn also help tolerate the physical therapy exercises, those sort of things like that. 
So our, the, the two mainstays of treatment are cortisone injection and physical therapy. Um, your end stage or last resort um, is, is surgical treatments. There are a couple surgeries that can be done. Um, and one of them is what's called a manipulation under anesthesia. So basically what's done is you're taken to the OR, you're put under anesthesia, and it sounds a little barbaric, but basically what's done is that we, we manipulate your arm and shoulder to try to help open up that capsule, all right? And then the second one, which sometimes can be done in conjunction with the manipulation under anesthesia, sometimes done on its own, is a capsule of release, where this one is a little, lot less barbaric, where it's done through a scope, um, so small little incisions to, and, and try to, and what they do is just cut the capsule open and try to expand it that way. Okay. So obviously with surgery, there's always risk involved with that, with, with any surgery. Now the exercises that people are doing, what are some common ones? Would this be something that people would also do at home after physical therapy? Absolutely. So, um, I think that's a key component for all physical therapy, but definitely with this, is that um, not just the exercises while in physical therapy and seeing the physical therapist, but also the home program. So a lot of the things we do and teach is more of like kind of towel stretches. So taking a towel and kind of reaching back and kind of reaching forward, reaching out to the side, those sort of things like that. Um, you, know, you can use a band doing those things as well. Um, uh, what we call pendulum exercises of kind of dangling the arm down and kind of doing circle motions, up, going up and down, left and right. And also kind of like, um, and the third one would be like kind of climbing the wall and kind of trying to reach up higher and higher, you know, every few times that you do that. So it is very important. I, I, I uh, no matter what kind of treatment is done for this, especially for a physical therapy standpoint, it is very important that the home exercises are key with this. Um, because just doing it the one time or once a week, once every couple of weeks with, with the physical therapist is just not enough. Um, so a lot of, we have, we have to be very cognizant about being good about it at home as well. So how quickly would you see results after starting treatment? So that's, that's something that varies. Um, you know, if we do catch it earlier on, it is a little bit easier to kind of open up. So if we catch it where it start, it's more in that freezing phase, and it's a little bit easier to kind of pass through that frozen phase and get into the thawing phases, which is where we want it to be. So, um, you know, it, it does vary. Um, you know, again, on average of leaving it alone, two, three years. Um, with those sort of things, we can help try to expedite that to maybe more months and maybe like a year sort of. That was actually going to be one of my questions too, is how long does this treatment last? Is it till the pain is gone? Can you ever be cured from this? So yes, you, you, you can be cured from this. And um, my recommendation is always that um, continuing with all the modes of treatment as, as, as long as we need to until pain is gone and the range of motion is back to near completely normal. Usually the pain will go away quicker then the range of motion will come back. So um, I think just, just keeping up, again, uh, harp on therapy exercises, but keeping up with those is a super important part of um, you know, improving the range of motion. So one treatment for frozen shoulder is called a Brisbane procedure. What is this? And when might someone with frozen shoulder get this done? 
So this is where, this is something that's um, a little bit newer and, and exciting, especially um, here at the Cleveland Clinic that we're doing a little, uh, we're doing a version of that with some additive things into it. So what is a Breezeman procedure? It's a, how to explain it is a hydrodilatation. So what we do, it's an injection procedure done in the office, done under ultrasound guidance. Um, what, what I do is we, um, we do give a numbing injection around the nerve to kind of numb up the arm, make it a little bit more comfortable. Then, I, then, then we take a large amount of fluid, um, about 20 cc's or 20 milliliters of fluid. That is a concoction of um, numbing medicine, um, sterile water, and then um, steroid, as long as they're a controlled diabetic. So we take that concoction and inject it into the capsule to try to expand the capsule. Um, and um, in turn, try to also at the same time as expanding, it's breaking up those scar tissue, breaking up the adhesion. Um, and so there's been some studies that show that that is somewhat effective in, in improving range of motion the steroid part does help with the cortisone part does help with the pain, but we're, what we're doing more recently here at the Cleveland Clinic is we're doing that procedure and then immediately right after doing that, we're having you see the physical therapist. And then the physical therapist will do some passive range of motion stretching. So we wanna take advantage of while the shoulder's feeling is full up and kind of expanded, and you know the numbing injection helps calm down some of that pain that we can expand that capsule even more by stretching it out through the physical therapy. And with these two combined, which um, uh, um, hasn't really been done, and this is kind of what's been exciting, um, we've seen significant improvement and significant results with this, where uh, a month after an injection procedure like this, we see significant to minimal, or I should say, again, decrease pain where we have minimal to no pain and um, significantly improve range of motion um, where it's not complete. And that's the thing we re reiterate, it's not complete, but patients are very satisfied with the amount of range of motion that's improved and, and most importantly, also involved with pain relief. Who's a good candidate for having this procedure? So that's something that um, we're, we're continuing to look at. And, and I, in, in my opinion, um, what, what I have started to just start off with that procedure now um, and, and go straight into it. And then from there going into still going to have the physical therapy, still going to have the follow-ups with that. Um, now you could always consider like just doing a regular cortisone injection, maybe if it's like an earlier phase, that sort of thing like that. But, you know, a lot of times when patients are coming to us, they've already in that frozen phase and it's been going on for a while. Um, and so I, I kind of counsel the patients saying, this is kind of our options. Most patients would agree and say, yep, let's, let's do that after I kind of explain that this helps expedite even faster. Now, the more involved surgical procedures you mentioned, at what point does a doctor determine, okay, this is what we're gonna to have to do because other interventions are maybe not working? Um, it, this, the, the question of when, to, um, uh, when do we proceed to surgery um, is a little bit, um, patient, it's very patient dependent. So 
we want to exhaust all of the options, um, physical therapy, cortisone injection, um, Griezmann procedures, uh, if it's, you know, if, if, if that's a possibility. Um, and the last resort is the surgical option um, because there are risks with the surgery involved. Um, and so there is no set like really time frame or anything like that. There's no really number of injections. It really does come down to um, the surgeon and the patient and kind of our, we're not really getting anywhere with any of these treatments. I think it's time to move on and, and, and get to the next step. So if someone is undergoing treatment for frozen shoulder, are there any activities or things that you should avoid just to make sure you're not making anything worse? Yeah, no. So um, I, I think, uh, again, we want motion. So we, motion is, is important for this. So we actually want you to try to be as active as you can. So keeping it moving, and, and again, pain is your guide, but trying to keep it as loose, keeping it as moving, that sort of thing like that. A lot of common things that we see after, you know, we injure ourselves, again, with, with frozen shoulder is that we stop using it. And so that's where frozen shoulder can develop. So we want to kind of, we want to get things moving. We want you to try to be as active as possible. So is there anything else we haven't talked about or any angles that you maybe want to mention we haven't discussed yet? No, I think we, I think we, we covered a lot of different things about, about frozen shoulder here today. Um, I think uh, it's just important to have kind of patients know that this is very painful um, and very um, uh, debilitating for the patient in the fact of just how much it affects their daily lives. Um, and so um, definitely if, we, if you're starting to think of that, definitely come in, start seeing one of our healthcare professionals and, and have it evaluated and, and take it from there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Patel. This has been really interesting. I appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Frozen shoulder is a painful but treatable condition. Working closely with your doctor and other healthcare professionals, including a physical therapist, can help alleviate pain and restore range of motion. If you'd like to find out more information about frozen shoulder treatment, please visit clevelandclinic.org slash sportsmedicine. Thank you for listening to Health Essentials, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit clevelandclinic.org slash HEPodcast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest health tips, news, and information.